Hello, my name is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to this episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to yet another extraordinary organization serving their community by conserving and preserving our heritage. It could be an organization in your community, in your county, or in your state. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the program. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. We believe people want to have a better understanding of these precious organizations, know how they're funded, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We have confidence that this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Each guest on our program brings with them a truly unique viewpoint and perspective around how they tell the story of their communities, how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they have created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and different each time. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this episode snapping. Here are some thought-provoking facts in history for January 31st. In 1851, the San Francisco Orphans Asylum was founded. It was the first in California. In 1865, on January 31st, Congress passes the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery in America. It passed 121 to 24. In 1876, the United States ordered all Native Americans to move into reservations. In 1928, Scotch tape was first marketed by the 3M Company. In 1949, the first daytime soap on TV, soap opera that is, on TV, These Are My Children, uh, premiered on NBC in Chicago. In 1990, the first McDonald's in the Soviet Union opened in Moscow. In 1872, we have a birthday for Zane Gray. He was an American West novelist. In 1919, we have a birthday for Jackie Robinson, the first African-American Major League Baseball player. He played for the Dodgers. And he was born in Cairo, Georgia, and he died in 1972. In 1893, 
the trademark Coca-Cola was first registered in the United States Patent Office. I learned this from a great genealogist who taught me that if at first you don't succeed, search and then search again. That's why we call it research. You know you're a genealogist if you start thinking about the surnames of people you meet to see if you can discern the origin of the name and how they might be related. For our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we'll meet with Heritage Center of Dickinson County, Kansas. That should be a great program. They have a hand-carved carousel from 1901, which is also a designated National Historic Landmark. It is complemented with a 1904 Wurlitzer Band organ. There's also a one-room schoolhouse, a pioneer cook stove, a chicken coop with live chickens for the kids, a replica gun just like the one used by Wild Bill Hickok, a horse-drawn fire engine, and an early telephone switchboard. You can tour the County Historical Museum with its many outdoor historical buildings and the Museum of Independent Telephony. And finally, you can follow us on preservationoaks.podbean.com. Twitter, Facebook, Reason FM, YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Audible. Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and Listen Notes under MicroStream Radio, Preservation Oaks, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, or Sean Radcliffe. You can email us anytime with questions or comments at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Well, listeners, you're in the right place because today we are in a state known as the Star of the North, which is the great state of Minnesota. This episode will give you valuable information regarding Beltrami County Historical Society located in Bemidji, Minnesota. If you're a resident in the local area, the program will help you understand what the society has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the society sponsors, and how to best support them and your community by volunteering and donating. Today, we're very fortunate to have as our guest one of our Preservation Oaks, who is Ms. Emily Thabes, the Executive Director of the Beltrami County Historical Society, located in Bemidji, Minnesota. The web address of the society is BeltramiHistory.org. Here's more information about our guest on this episode. Originally from West Virginia, Emily's dad was a history teacher. She holds master's degrees in library information science and interdisciplinary leadership and carries 20 years of experience in nonprofit and education leadership. Prior to joining as executive director of the Historical Society, she worked with the Hennepin County Management Institute, Capital One Bank, and Rasmussen College, where she served in various roles from campus librarian to dean of library and learning services. So she's got a great background. And just a bit of additional information. Preservation Oaks has been in contact with Emily since last September to make an appearance on the show. But Emily was a fairly new executive director with a lot to manage, as you'll find out during this program. She was really busy. And by busy, I mean that since last September, Emily and her team have just exploded with a burst of innovative and very positive improvements to almost every aspect of the Beltrami County Historical Society, from the way they communicate to their involvement with history and sharing the history of Beltrami County. 
I'm so glad to finally have her join us today, and in particular to review with you some of the exemplary progress being made. Welcome to the program, Emily. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. You know, when I think about Beltrami County in Bemidji, I think of the North Woods area of Minnesota and how stunningly beautiful it is. There's thousands of acres of lakes and forests. Looks like, to me, just from surfing the web and looking at your community, people in your area enjoy a lot of fun and relaxing outdoor activities. Does the population swell in the summer with tourists coming to the resorts? Yeah, I think the tourist destination that Bemidji is 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 uh it's a pretty wonderful place to be i think it's wonderful all year round but yes we certainly have more tourists in the summertime just because of the warmer weather this is a a really rich area for lakes and forests so it's it's really heavily used by the recreation industry lots of folks boating and fishing which is great it's also even though a little bit harder to get to and perhaps a little colder it's also awesome in the winter i mean i i cross-country skied this week i'm going ice fishing this weekend so there's plenty to do here all year round if you're willing to take the opportunities and and aren't afraid of a little cold are there big (laughs) ski resorts we actually have one pretty large ski area just north of bemidji it's called buena vista ski area and, and Buena Vista, interesting enough, actually, that was the planned county seat originally um, before it moved a little bit south to Bemidji. But there's a really nice ski area there that supports downhill and cross country and they make snow and it's, they've got snowboarding and tubing. It's really nice. That's great. Now, I read that you also have Native American nations in your county, right? We do. We have two nations whose land overlaps with the county yes what can you tell us do you have interactions as a historical society with those nations uh yeah i would say that our relationships are growing and we are working so hard to improve those relationships over time i've only been with the historical society now for i think like nine nine or so months the the relationship with the native tribes has changed over time let me start by just sharing a little bit about the two tribes that are in the area okay the, um the red lake nation is an ojibwe nation unto itself. So it is separate from the Ojibwe tribes with reservations in the area. And this all has to do with the treaties that were signed way back when. There was a push by the United States government for the tribes to treat their land a little bit differently and make different arrangements so they would not have that land always so that like basically the government could could buy the land. Red Lake placed all of their land into a trust. So no one tribal member can sell parts of their land and they are their own inclusive nation. They are not a reservation that is part of the larger tribe. Unlike Leech Lake, which the Leech Lake Reservation as part of the Ojibwe Nation here. So it's a little it's a little bit of a different setup. And I'll be the first person to say that as a white girl, I'm not the best person to give, yeah. you know, all yeah. that native history. I think the biggest thing to learn out of it is that the relationships between the tribes and the county and the United States are continuing to be complicated. And the way that the tribes operate in relationships to the county and the, the federal government continue to be complicated. And part of, I think, our role as a historical society, and one of the reasons that we are trying to work on improving our relationships, you know, we want to tell the whole truth about the story around how Native peoples arrived here yep. and 
how they have been treated over time and how the policies and the actions of the government have shaped and in some ways shaped in very negative ways the story and the history and the culture of the Ojibwe people here, but also how in many cases they've overcome some of those challenges, how they continue to persist. And some of the talk around rights, that's a strong piece of that conversation. We also have a bit of obligation there because our, our collection was actually started on native artifacts. So okay. um, approximately 70 years ago this year, we are 70 years old as of December. Hey, congratulations. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah, our initial collection was donated by John Morrison, who was a mixed race Native American from Red Lake. And he was the headmaster at the Panema Indian Education School. He was also the postmaster for some time and had sort of a general store and trading post. And through all of those roles in his relationship, serving as a representative of the tribe, in some cases, he amassed a very large collection of native artifact and he donated those to our museum as sort of the foundation of the historical society and the history museum and many of those materials are still on display now and we're continuing to do work on that collection because there are some items you know that we feel might be best you know not here best back with the tribes yeah so you know that's just ongoing work to educate ourselves about the materials that are currently you know in our care and where should they be and how do we show the best respect and honor the the truths that are the very complicated history between the pioneers the white folks and that you know and the native americans who who are here and continue to work out this relationship today i can only imagine that it's got to be a little bit tough trying to come up to speed on their point of view, the those nations' point of view. And I congratulate you for doing that. Do they have their own historic societies? So it's not so much a historic society, but they, but the tribes do typically have a preservation specialist or an archivist okay. that are responsible for tribal records and for the histories of the tribes and for, for keeping that information safe. A lot of that work, though, that happens is more internal than it is external, right? So it's more about preserving culture within the tribe. We have a lot of work to do to to be better communicators and better partners in the ongoing preservation work. Okay, well, that's wonderful. You've got a brown bag history that you've started, and your first one is Leo Sokoop. Yep, Leo Sokoop is a he was an English instructor and is a historian who has written a few books under our publication. We we publish books through the Historical Society. It's sort of like a, an adult history club, if you will. So starting next Thursday, and it'll be the fourth Thursday of every month Okay. over lunchtime, he'll be offering brown bag lunch series. So he'll bring in a guest speaker and everybody can kind of bring their own food. And then there will be a brief presentation and discussion to follow. There are quite a few different topics. He's tap uh, several different folks in the area who are both researchers as well as oral historians. I think the variety of topics that will be offered over the next few months will really give a little bit of something to, to anyone who, who wants to attend. And they're, of course, they're free. So Fantastic. Can anybody attend those virtually? We are very much hoping that we'll be able to record them. I don't know if we're going to be able to offer them in real time, but I think we'll be able to record them and put them online at a later time for folks to listen to. If we can offer them live, we'll definitely let folks know and make that available. Fantastic. Leo is offering a four-part course on a book that he wrote on Ojibwe history. And really, the book that he wrote, I would say, is a collaborative piece. He used both notes from John Morrison as well as our first president of the Historical Society, Charles Vandersloos. Okay. Um, so he kind of pulled the notes together from those folks 
to put together the reflective historical piece using both Morrison's diary, which would have had, I mean, the the perspectives, and then the Vandersloot piece really provided some of the context around it, which was really helpful. And the book includes maps and audio recordings and, and quite a few other things. So it's a very rich text. So he's offering a four-part series around, you know, using the text as the guide to give people a little bit more introspection. Oh, that's great. Uh, what are you looking at for brown bag topics coming up? I know that the first topic is around the topic of homesteading, how early homesteading worked in the Beltrami County area. Oh, nice. The second February topic is the Ojibwe way of life. We've got in March, the topic is called Caesars in the Wilderness about Radisson and the Grosseliers. In April, it will be about wilderness camping. So we've got a really interesting variety of topics. Now, I read also that you just recently obtained a grant to support the digitization of reel-to-reel history recordings, that you've got like 150 oral history tapes made in the early 1950s, and, and many of them were Native American inhabitants. I think I had mentioned Charles Vandersloos, who was one of our first leaders of the Historical Society. He was a historian who took it upon himself to do recordings of community oral history. Yeah. So he met with folks from around the county and And he met with folks from all walks of life. He met with Native Americans. He met with lumberjacks. He met with some early pioneers who were in their late age because, again, the the county was formed right around the turn of the centuries. He was talking to either folks who were very young at the time that they settled or the children of folks who had settled. So there's a really rich variety in the recordings. What is rather unfortunate is that because they were done on real tape, there was limited access to those tapes, of course, because there aren't a lot of tools available for the average person to listen yeah. to a reel. We also do not have transcripts of a lot of those. Oh, wow. So that was part of the reason that we first wanted to get them preserved effectively. So that's why we got the move to digitization. And now we have a second grant that we are working through to have have those transcribed so that we can have searchable transcripts that we'll be able to utilize along with the real tapes, which will give a lot of richer data as folks are perhaps listening to the audio. My goodness, that is such a gold mine. I will tell you that folks held nothing back when they were doing their recordings. They <laughs> were they were very honest and forthright about their neighbors and the people in their community when they when they were sharing their stories. So they're pretty interesting to listen to some of them. Now, will that be available through your website? That is the goal is for us to eventually put both the, the audio files and the transcripts online so that folks can hopefully search through the transcripts, but at very least have access to the recordings. Oh, my gosh. That's just wonderful. You could write a whole book just on that. Quilling on birch bark. First of all, I know nothing about this thing called quilling. What is that? Do you know? I do. It's a native craft yeah. where folks take porcupine quills oh. that are either natural or dyed, and then they are attached using um, either sewn on or glued on to different materials. So whether it be for decorating clothing or baskets or artwork, on quilling on birch bark, that would be just sort of a decorative piece where folks would take a piece of birch bark that's been likely steamed flat, and then quills are added onto that in a, in a decorative manner. My so. goodness. And you had that on, on December 14th. We did. And not only did we have that program on December 14th, but on the way to the program, one of the attendees came across a porcupine that oh, had met its misfortune and they thought it would be great to just bring that right along to the class and so they surely were picking porcupines right off of that unfortunate fella to use for their quilling project oh my goodness yeah (laughs) yeah oh man what other programs do you have planned 
Right now, we've just opened a new exhibit called Beltrami County Women in Winter Sports. Oh, nice. And it's really exciting. We have gear from probably about 12 to 15 different women who have been generous enough to, to donate materials on other private collections for us to have on temporary display. We have artifacts from six different Olympics. It stuns me to know how many Olympians are from this area. We have several curlers, biathlonists, cross-country skiers wow. who grew up here and worked their way through high school and college curling clubs and then made it to the world and Olympic levels in their in their sports, which is just truly extraordinary. Um, we have representation of sports from dog sledding, speed skating, Nordic skiing, basketball, cheerleading, ice hockey, quite a wide range of, of sports that are represented and really cool women that we've gotten to meet and learn about how they were breaking barriers in sports at a time that it was a time sometimes before Title IX or many of them were just the beginning of Title IX and were able to take on opportunities as athletes and coaches because of changes to laws and regulations regarding equality in sport. Wow. Um, so this, this is actually anniversary year of Title IX. And of course, it's also a year of Winter Olympics. So we are super excited to be able to celebrate women in sport. Uh, and to that end, even though COVID is still running rampant and we yeah. are trying to limit our in-person program somewhat, we are going to be offering interviews over the next couple months through our website and blog. And then we'll be posting those on Facebook as well with different athletes and coaches, as well as support staff. I think often get overlooked. For example, we're we're really looking forward to doing an interview with ski patrol folks who volunteer their time rarely to make sure that folks are safe on the slopes. So just one really great example of some future opportunities, I think, to highlight some of the really cool women in this area and some of the historic achievements that they've made through sport. Oh, yeah. So that's, I, I think that's a big piece. And then as we follow up and, and finish up our art history series, we will be doing some Ukrainian egg painting as we get closer to <laughs> springtime so i think that's going to be an exciting presentation for folks as well okay so how did are, you come up with ukrainian egg painting well it just turns out we have a lot of wonderful artists and crafters in the area that our volunteers are familiar with it really works out great that we can offer some really unique programs that folks have been doing historically for for ages right it's not like this is a new technique that we're sharing it's really no, i cool think that that's really neat that's that historic here so yeah i think it's going to be a a fun program and very timely for the for the season when we when we offer it. We will be off, offering some additional author programs. We really try to focus on history books and local history to be specific. While there are lots of books out there that are getting written all the time, not as many history books get written as frequently. So yeah. I have a goal of having at least four authors this year. And I think we, we already are getting one lined up for February or March around some veteran history of the area. And I think that's going to be a really interesting title that folks are going to love. So looking forward to that, too. Uh, we are excited to invite you know members of the public in to check out the, the exhibit. And we look forward to sharing some pictures and other content online throughout the next couple months and, until we close this exhibit and move into our next one in the spring. Yeah, that's fantastic. It is exciting that you've got all that talent and all that history there. I ran across on your website uh, what you referred to as a land acknowledgement, which is we acknowledge that Beltrami County Historical Society is located on land that is the current and ancestral homeland of the Ojibwe and Dakota. And it goes on. Is that part of building bridges to those nations? 
I mean, it's not something that we spoke with tribal nations about before creating it and putting it on the website. I think that we as a historical society and history center in the Midwest, and I would say museums generally who have interactions with tribes are, are in communities where Native peoples live and have lived. We, we have some obligations around telling truthful stories, whole truthful stories. Yep. And I think to, to the extent that we are able to decolonize our collections through education, through repatriation. And part of that is even if it's through a, a subtle thing as a, as a land statement saying we weren't here first and this land really didn't belong to us. It was taken and it might have been taken, quote unquote, legally, but it was still taken. That has led to a lot of the complications that we still experience today in relationship building and, and trying to be a whole community. Yeah. Right? Part of the job as history is to help us to not repeat mistakes that we've had in the past, to acknowledge that those mistakes were made and try to learn from them and be better people. And one way to do that is to first acknowledge that these things even happened, right? That's really the primary point of that land acknowledgement is just to first say, you know, we know that there's more here than just meets the eye. And we are in a beautiful train depot and it's a lovely space that was built by white people on native land. We just have to start there and acknowledging kind of where we began. And that will help us, I think, grow and I think be a little bit more transparent about the development that we need to do to recognize and be a, a place that shares a history of a whole community. I agree with you. And, and I admire you for doing that. I haven't seen that on any other historical society yet. Of course, I haven't seen them all. But so far, this is the first one I've run across. And, and I think it's very good. I, oh, thanks. I don't want to take too much credit for it. I mean, it's largely based off of the land acknowledgement statement that's written by Bemidji State University. So, I mean, it's not like we came up with unique language. I mean, we came up with some, but not entirely. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. So it's a it's a good place to start. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I read your county society serves 86 townships. Even though they're independent governments, I believe the society also serves those Indian reservations. How yeah. do you interface with all of the townships and the reservations? So I'm going to say right now, we don't do a great job of it, but we're working on getting better at it. We actually have a plan for this spring and summer to do a townships tour. We are creating t-shirts and everything. We will be heading on, on the road. We've got commitments from different volunteers and board members to join me at different places. The first thing you ought to know is that not all 86 townships have government, like formal governments and buildings and so on. There's likely a clerk of court in some places and maybe a representative, but not every township will have a town hall that regularly used or anything like that, right? right. But okay. they probably did in the past, which is part of the importance of our trip because there may be buildings or or artifacts or records that are still somewhere around these townships. They may be even sitting in a private home that we want to make sure are being taken care of. We want to document the buildings and the artifacts that are in each of these township areas. But we also want to talk with governing folks who are there and community members to, to share the kind of partnership that we can offer in terms of records preservation and archives preservation and presentations and, and helping with community education around history. Um, we also want to make sure that our records around the histories of those locations are accurate so that we can share that out with the broader county as well. So that's a little bit of the work that we are intending to do when we do our tour of townships. That's fantastic. Yeah, I never thought of the fact that if they don't have a town hall anymore, or that kind of administration, then those records had to go somewhere, right? Right. And we hope they didn't go in the garbage. Do you have any exhibits 
at any other organizations besides the Beltrami County Historical Society Depot? So we run an exhibit out of the Tourist Information Center in Bemidji. A lot of folks may not be familiar with the Tourist Information Center, but that is where the big fallen babe statue are. The Tourist Information Center was built there to sort of be a house for folks to go in and and get information about the area. And there's brochures and that sort of thing there local. So we have a small display in there that is actually additional information about the women's um, women and winter sports exhibit. So we've got additional artifacts on display as sort of a teaser exhibit. And that is something that we update quarterly um, just to keep something current in there and tied to some of the theme that we are working on. While we don't have any other exhibit open in the in the county at this time, we do have one that's coming up. There is a consortium of history museums, historical societies across the Northwest, Minnesota, and we are part of that alliance. And that group is working together right now on a history of toys exhibit. So we have collectively gotten together and shared images and descriptions of the many toys that we have in our individual collections at each of our museums. And so we're putting together banners with information about those toys by theme. And then we'll have that information on display as well as our own toy collections. And we don't have a, a lot of space right now in the county museum, but we there are partners that we have in town that we're hoping that we can work with to display some of the game information as well as some of our artifacts. And we hope to tie that to some game programming as well. So I think we have some pretty neat opportunities to bring both kids and adults into a topic that I think is, is of universal interest. Really, you know, the changes I've seen since I first started talking with you in last September are just phenomenal. You and your team have have really done a lot. Um, I can't, I could not give enough credit to the really amazing volunteers that we have. And and for those historical societies that struggle with finding a volunteer base, I really feel for them because as much as I've been trying to lead a vision here to, to move forward in some projects, none of that work would be possible without the incredible board volunteer members. Yep. Who, you know, all of our board members are also volunteers, but we also have volunteers who aren't board members who are here every day assisting with research and collections and displays. It's really fantastic to have community members who are so invested in not just history, but very specifically ensuring that the way that we are working on saving and sharing the local history is something that they align with and champion. And that's really been incredible to be able to see that because the room that the women's sports exhibit is in was a storage space when I got here. And it was a very cluttered, you could barely walk through it, storage space that had not been cleaned in probably 10 years. To be able to move from that to having that space completely cleaned out, the floor redone, painted, and everything to become an exhibit now is such an extraordinary accomplishment, and that really could not have been done without those individuals. So we cannot say enough as leaders about the volunteers who are committed to to history work in our communities. So people listening from Minnesota, from Beltrami County, from Bemidji, (laughs) you guys need to know that in comparison to many societies across the country, you really have a fantastic facility there, and you're very lucky to have it. Can you tell the listeners about the depot? I can tell them a little bit about it. Um, The depot was the last depot commissioned by James J. Hill. Okay. Who was a railroad slash lumber magnet who lived in St. Paul. For those who are not familiar with James J. Hill, if you ever have a chance to go to the cities, his house is, um, you can tour it. He built a library there and all sorts of things. His name is very well known. He was the head of the Great Northern Railroad, um, which carried both passengers and cargo around the cities uh, throughout the Midwest, up into Canada. 
and Bemidji was the last depot that he commissioned in 1912. And he came up and did a tour with city leaders and they, they took him on a boat ride around Lake Bemidji and apparently he was very, very impressed with the area. So it was actually dedicated in January of 1913, oh, is wow. my understanding. The building is gorgeous. It is. We have, it's neoclassic architecture. It has arched framework windows and the original terrazzo floors. It's a really beautiful facility. It's split kind of into two parts for the main space where the community members come in. So when you come in the building, the right side is our, I was, I'd call it the more permanent exhibit area that has sort of our pioneer history, early geographic history of the area and geologic history to some extent. There is some information about the Red Lake Tribe and the Leech Lake Tribe, and we have many uh, Native American artifacts on display, but also just general history about Beltrami County. And then within that main exhibit hall is actually the original railroad ticket office, and that has been turned into basically the railroad history room nice. uh, where we have original artifacts from when it was a depot and it includes a model train uh, the iron workhorse railroad society they meet here weekly they have a model train set up in the basement that is massive and they hold a train event here every april they have a really nice model back there that works people can push a button and it'll go around and oh, it, cool. um they've designed it to make it look representative of the of the area and of the of the city and so it's it's really neat to be able to see that they maintain that very well which is which is wonderful we also have a, a research space here folks can come in and you can you can always do research for free and our volunteers will help you out getting onto our site and pulling materials for you from the back. We provide research services on a donation basis for people who want help finding relatives or information about their houses or find a grave kind of stuff. We have some really great researchers who love digging into mysteries. And then the back of the house beyond our special exhibit space is where we maintain and keep our archives sort of on the main floor. We have a back area space that's for our printed materials, photographs, maps, um, printed archives. And then the top floor is where we keep, I would call it the grandma's attic, if you will. So it's sort of where all of the three-dimensional artifacts are, the clothing and the kitchenwares and housewares and farm equipment. And I mean, anything that you could ever imagine really is upstairs. That's kind of how we maintain it. And then hopefully, you know, our goal is to kind of swap out materials and bring things downstairs to put on display as it becomes relevant. And we were we were excited to be able to do that with passing cross-country skis upstairs and some snowshoes that we currently have on display in our sports exhibit. So, Fantastic. Now, that depot is listed as a National Historic Place, right? It is. Yep. It was added to the registry and when the building was renovated um, back in, I think it was 2001. Wow, that's nice. And the last time I knew, you were planning on painting and insulating that depot to make sure that it was weather tight. Did that all get done? The painting was completely done and the insulation is very nearly done. They really did a stunning job in the exterior of the building. The group that did it is named Mr. Moles, but they specialize in historic buildings. The fellow who leads the crew used to work on historic like castles in Europe and oh, stuff like that before he came here. Wow. And he really likes doing historic restorations. The plan was just to paint over what was there. Yeah. And they took the time to actually strip out all of the old paint wow. and then applied the fresh coat so that it would last a little bit longer and quite frankly look a bit better and they chose a green that matches a color that would have been used on the building in the 40s um, we we tried to keep something that was historically appropriate and they actually while they were stripping found a door that had been labeled as a cargo door like a cargo room door yeah when the building was redone back in the early 2000s that door was put back in the wrong place but that door had gold 
lettering on it. Oh. So we actually, we redid the gold lettering so that it still says like cargo door, but that's the little secret. It's not where it's supposed to be. So it's actually on the, it's on the opposite side of the building where that door should be. But that, wow. it's really neat to see. And it's a really beautiful look. The exterior looks really great. The windows that we have at the top of the building that, that have the kind of arched framework windows, we are going to take some historic photos and have those printed out and put in the windows this spring. So we'll have some really great historic images that you'll be able to see when you're coming into the parking lot. And those images will be spread across the front of the building as well. Um, so really giving us a great opportunity to take advantage of our archives and just add to the visual experience that folks have when they're coming into the building. Oh my goodness. And then one of the really nice things about our, our volunteers and our space, the building is owned by the city and they are partners with us in, in the building. So they help to maintain the building and keep our parking lots clean and shovel all the snow out of the way, which is really wonderful, especially this time of year. But they also help with our garden beds in the springtime. And we have a master gardener and a master naturalist on our volunteer team who help to maintain those beds. So we have natural wildflowers and plants that are native to Minnesota growing in our beds. And there's little informational plaques about those outside. We also have bike racks that are available outside. So spring and summertime is a really great time to come around the depot because it's fun outside and it's fun inside and it's right on the trail. So it's really great for people who are getting out and getting that exercise as well. My goodness. Everybody from uh, Beltrami County, you need to get down there. It, it's, <laughs> it sounds so wonderful. I've seen only a few pictures of the inside where I could find them, but it really looks beautiful. Well, the website just got updated right at the end of the year. I mean, literally, I think it was like the 28th of December. But we do have some updated pictures of our internal exhibit spaces that I think can give a little bit of a better idea of what that looks like. And then one of the big projects this year is to update our gift shop. We have a lovely gift shop space. It's a little small, but it's it's very cozy. And we have a lot of really neat stuff in there, mostly books, um, history books, local history books. But we also are featuring some local artisans. And we want to have more space to, to really highlight local artists and local makers and their items. And so that's a very big focus for us going into this year. It's so making a really nice, better space in the gift shop that's a little bit more organized for people to see and purchase those items is a big goal of ours for the year. So. Oh yeah, that's going to be great. Well, Emily, it's time for our first break. Okay. We're going to have to take a break and we'll be right back after these important words. Listeners, stay tuned. Hey everyone, we'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. Explore the history of Beltrami County, Minnesota by experiencing the exhibits at the Beltrami County Historical Society located in your own hometown and nestled in the heart of Bemidji. Bring your family, bring a friend, or just come on down to learn more about why they love the 1912 Depot and Beltrami County. Visit them at their website at beltramihistory.org or come to the depot at 130 Minnesota Avenue Southwest, Bemidji, Minnesota 56601 or email them at depot at beltramihistory.org. You'll be glad you did. This is Melody Logger, president of the Heartland Museum, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Hola, si es nuevo en los Estados Unidos o es de ascendencia hispana, querrá ser voluntario y apoyar a su sociedad histórica o genealógica local. 
¿Por qué? Porque ahora eres parte del tejido de Estados Unidos, y estas sociedades quieren ayudar a contar tu historia familiar y tu historia. Si desea que su cultura se conserve como parte de nuestra historia estadounidense, eche un vistazo a su área y conéctese con su sociedad local. Estarás contento de haberlo hecho. Gracias. Hello my plebes. This is Cleopatra, Queen of the Nile. While I'm waiting for Mark Anthony, I'm listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Hello, this is Amuli Okudili. My family and I listen to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. We love Sean Thomas Radcliffe's interesting guests and learning more about our new country, America. Please support your local museum, genealogical or historical society. God bless America. We're spending a lot more time at home. Mike binged watched every episode he could fit into his mind. Betsy has painted her kitchen and dining room seven times. Natalie is saving the plastic bread wrapper holders. She has a plan to melt them down to make a new back scratcher. Melissa ate the entire contents of her freezer. Terry uses his virtual reality headset to escape into the microscopic world of dust mites. Yep, lockdowns are no fun, and the longer this goes on, the crazier it's going to get. Stay sane or come back to reality by listening to Preservation Oaks to make the most of life at home during the lockdown. We give you a steady dose of interesting information and reality. How did the county you live in get its name? How can you volunteer and spend your free time helping your local museum, historical or genealogical society? How was the 1918 flu pandemic similar to today's COVID-19 pandemic 100 years later? How do archivists spend their time? With a bit of imagination, history can be a time machine. The more you learn, the wiser you'll get. To make the most of your time at home, visit preservationoaks.podbin.com. At Preservation Oaks. We love history. We are very grateful for our historical and genealogical society guests, who share interesting history and information about their society, their current needs, and about what makes them unique. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks, and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. Again, that's preservationoaks at gmail.com. Listeners, thank you for listening. You can comment anytime about the show or send suggestions by emailing preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you. And now, back to Preservation Oak. All right. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we are here today with Ms. Emily Thabes, the Executive Director of the Beltrami County Historical Society located in Bemidji, Minnesota. If you live in the local area of Beltrami County, Minnesota, and haven't visited your Beltrami County Historical Society, try to plan a visit as soon as you can. 
From the pictures I've been able to come across on the Society's website and Facebook page, I can see that the building of the Society is spacious and marvelous warm space. This is all about your history and your culture, Beltramians. Please volunteer and donate to preserve your history. Just a reminder, you can connect with the Society at BeltramiHistory.org, and they're located at 130 Minnesota Avenue Southwest in Bemidji, Minnesota. You can phone them at 218 444 and you can email them at depot at history.org. Welcome back, Emily. Well, thank you. All right. So we were talking about the depot and I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about the area one more time because it appears, and I may have a bad list or something, but it appears that you have a ton of festivals, all kinds of festivals. And that's really impressive to see because not every county, not every town has an opportunity to do that. What kind of festivals does the society participate in? You're right that this county does have quite a few different celebrations that we are super excited to be participating in. I'll definitely point out the county fair probably first and foremost. So the county fair happens every August, second week of August. I grew up in West Virginia and that county fair was a little bit different. I mean, it had both spaces had permanent buildings, but I would say this one has quite a few more. And the one here in Beltrami County has some historic permanent buildings, including our Dowd Cabin, which was the first pioneer settler's cabin in Bemidji. It was created by Freeman Dowd, who came up here after serving in the Union Army and received his homestead and built a cabin on what's called Diamond Point, which is a park now near Bemidji State University. And really, he owned basically the middle of Bemidji at the time. And his cabin was preserved and then ultimately moved to the fairgrounds. And we have historic artifacts that are period appropriate um, in the cabin uh, to help give folks an idea of what life would have been like at that time. And so we we actually host that cabin throughout County Fair and have pioneer rope making outside. We have a blacksmith who comes in, weavers who, who will come in and do demonstrations. So it's a really great opportunity to have an experience of life at that time. And right next to the Dowd Cabin is a one-room schoolhouse that is also owned by the Historical Society, run and staffed by volunteers who share a little bit about early education and pioneer education in the county as well. So those are really two great opportunities to experience history right in the middle of the county fair and your Slurpees and your uh, cotton candy. So <laughs> that works out really great. Just before the county fair is the Dragon Boat Festival. The Historical Society does not maintain a dragon boat because that's a lot of work and we prefer to be on the observing and recording history side of things. Uh, so we do have, we do typically have a small display in the Historical Society about Dragon Boat Festival. I think that there's a chance that, that we'll be able to get a dragon head for, for this year. So that's something that's pretty, pretty exciting as well. We do participate in the Water Carnival, which is held over 4th of July weekend. And that's a ton of fun. We are in the parade. There's also a winter carnival. It's called the Night We Light. Um, and there's a parade for Night We Light that we participate in as well. We had a train in the parade this year, a little mini train pulled by a tractor. It was super cute. We didn't have enough candy. That was a good lesson learned. (laughs) I mean, just generally speaking, we try to participate in any sort of programs that are happening. Those are the major ones that happened in around here last year. Yeah. Uh, COVID has COVID impacted a lot of things and quite a bit got canceled or postponed. We do know that the all school reunion, that'll be happening this year too. And that's, it's actually a very big one. They're bringing in, I mean, it's like a, a massive reunion party for any student who attended Bemidji High School. 
But I know we're going to be um, heavily participating in that, and we plan on having an exhibit that runs alongside of that. And then in terms of powwows, those happen quite a bit around the area in, uh, let's just say, around the late April, early May timeline. And those really run pretty much through the, the you know September, October timeline. Oh, neat. And you'll see those around the area. Uh, most of those happen on reservation lands, but not exclusively, or tribal land, but not exclusively. The Bemidji State University has had a powwow in the past and a few other places. While we might take pictures or, or receive pictures from those, like we don't table there or participate that, in them that way. They're really not designed for that kind of participation from us. Yeah. However, we are our exhibit in the spring is about the powwow. Um, and we are hoping to take a group of folks to a powwow when the circuit begins again and provide a little bit of powwow education through both the exhibit and our programming, as well as that potential tour opportunity. So that's something that we're really looking forward to and hoping to engage in the powwows from from that perspective, which I think will be really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I don't even know much about what a powwow is. I've never really thought about it. And other than just an annual gathering, is there some spiritual element to a powwow? I should preface this by saying that I'm a white girl who does not have a native background and has only attended a powwow like as an observer. Yeah, right? I've okay. never really like danced in one or anything like that. Powwows happen for all sorts of reasons, but I think largely they are celebrations for what I've seen, but not exclusively. I think one of the reasons that we're so excited about doing the powwow exhibit in the spring is because we want to provide this kind of education for yeah. folks and like share the native perspective on the powwow. Because again, to me, like, what I see and what I experience would be completely different. I don't have the history of the cultural relevance to feel it, I think, in the same way. My experiences of powwow have been spiritual, certainly. I think that there is a spiritual element, and they're beautiful, and the music is beautiful. The, oh, yeah. the singing and the chanting, the drums, the regalia is gorgeous that folks wear. It's a competition, and it's very friendly, and it's it's just each one that I've experienced has been really wonderful. So I hope that we're able to bring more of that history and education into our spring exhibit. I think being able to educate a community who perhaps really only sees the powwow as this thing that happened for natives with natives to have a better understanding of that and what it what it means and represents. I, I, I'm hoping that that will be really great. So I'm kind of yeah. hoping it turns out, you know, and again, yeah, I, I'm a white boy and I, I've never been to a powwow. I've never known, you know, the spiritual aspect that Native Americans would attach to something like that. So that'll be a great opportunity for you. Can you give our audience what your mission is and uh, what's coming up on the horizon for BCHS? Where are you headed next? Uh, sure. In terms of our mission and, and focus, our primary aims are the collection of local history, the preservation of that local history, and then sharing it out with our community. And that community might be people who've lived there here their whole lives or they're coming into town and visiting for the day. We want folks to walk away from their experience with a historical society and however they experience it being online or a video or in person or through uh, a program that we might have offsite, whatever that is, not only a better understanding of the roots of this place and its its background and where, where we kind of are now, but how do we use that to improve the community and improve the lives of our neighbors and ourselves and the world around us. So I think we're well on our way to that. A, a big piece of what we're working on, I think this year, in the back end is preservation. Uh, so we received two grants right at the end of the year to help support that work. One of those is around preservation. So it's collection assessment for preservation. Uh, we'll bring in a couple experts who have extensive knowledge and background, not only in the preservation of artifacts, but also like how a building should help support 
preservation efforts from a air quality control and space standpoint, that kind of thing. Oh, good point. So we'll, yeah, so we'll have a couple experts come in to give us some guidance about our storage and our materials and what kind of work we should do moving forward and perhaps what kind of investments we might need to make so that we can prepare to write grants to help make those investments. Uh, so that's one big project. The other project tied to the collection is actually moving our collection from the collection management system that we use right now, which is, it's a software that we have purchased, but it's only available on computers in the historical society. So you okay. can't access it online. We're moving to a system that only, not only can you access online, but is also part of a network of Minnesota historical society and museums. So oh, wow. our collection will be available to be viewed online and searched with these other historical societies. So we will be joining a consortium, which gives us quite a few shared resources and development opportunities, but also kind of helps us to align our collection and our, our records um, with some best practices and standards, which is huge for us. Because again, this is a 50-year-old collection that I think we've been trying to organize for some time. So hopefully this will bring us to a really solid place. And that's really wonderful that, you know, through legacy funding and federal dollars and other grants and loans that we're able to do this kind of really essential work on a collection. Because I think a lot of folks, when they think about a museum, it's kind of the upfront stuff. It's what's on display or what an exhibit looks like or what your brochure looks like yeah. or what kind of program you're offering or how you present or how you fundraise. Sometimes I think the harder work is ensuring that this collection is viable and available and usable 50 years from now. Right? We want to make sure that this stuff is safe for years to come. And as technology improves around how you preserve a thing, how you maintain a record for a thing, where you store information and, and you know the resolution even of an image, Right? We want to make sure that we kind of at least sort of keep up with that so that, you know, you don't have folks who are having to try to play catch up a dozen years from now because we, we know we're not going to be around forever. So we want to try to make sure that this stuff is safe and secure for folks for years to come. And that's only going to help us with everything else that we need to do, improving our exhibits, making changes to those, eventually updating our permanent exhibit building programs, the core work that we do around the collection will help feed into all of those other projects eventually. That's so important for your community to know that every artifact you, you have, whether it's a photograph or whether it's a piece of clothing, has to be preserved properly so that it lasts. Yep, and everything takes a little bit of different efforts. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a different way to preserve a piece of clothing, obviously, than a photograph, and yep. different kinds of clothing require different needs. And Part of it, too, is not just the preservation of the thing, but the preservation of the story with the thing. And I think that that is so often lost because people often drop donations off at our door and they sometimes will do that without telling us. Right. right we don't. Right. We just show up and things are there. I would say let's compare it to like going to an antique store versus a museum. Like the provenance of, of, a, of an item in an antique store, when you provide the story behind something, it the, the value increases because yeah. there's a history behind it. The same thing is true with an item in a museum. I struggle with putting something on display or even sharing a picture when I don't know who's in the picture, what the story is behind it. People want that context. They want that story when it comes to history because we're not here to do creative writing, right? It's not here to make up something about what we see, but yeah. to tell the truth about what we see in, in whatever format that is. So one of the aims, I think, with this collection management stuff is to really ensure that we are putting stories to the best of our ability with the images or the maps or the artifacts that we have, but also as items come in from our very generous community, that we are getting those stories and 
tracking and collecting that information as well to provide the appropriate context when we begin to share some of these resources out. Now, I read somewhere that you had 750,000 artifacts. Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's just and that all fits in the depot. Well, it does. I mean, you haven't seen the attic. So, like, <laughs> you know, we, we definitely have at least that many items upstairs. It's probably somewhere between and in the back, somewhere between three quarters of a million and a million items. Wow. That's but amazing. When you think about like a photograph being an item, right? It's really easy for the, the majority of those items to be photographs or pages of things, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's more of that. But that's not to say that we don't have, I mean, I'm pretty sure we have something like 25,000 maps in our collection. Wow. So we know we have these maps, but again, like, could really use some more context and we really need to get them preserved and digitized like stuff like that we really are trying to get away from paper and paper is wonderful to an extent but it doesn't last and we don't have a ton of room so we want to try to make sure that we again work on any preservation preservation methods that we can and all that stuff just takes time and money and people and so we prioritize and do the best we can in the meantime that is a that is quite a collection for the community that is just wonderful now, I know that's got to cost money. I mean, you have to buy archival kind of storage and, and to your point earlier, the right kind of climate control and humidity and all of those things. That can be quite a challenge sometimes. What what kind of funding supports the society? We primarily run off of memberships and donations. That's our bread and butter. Okay. Uh, so we offer annual memberships for individuals and family members. And we have a business or community membership Obviously, it works a little bit differently. There are some advertising options with that and some guest passes. It doesn't quite work the same as a family membership, but fundamentally, you get the same kind of stuff. It includes our quarterly newsletter. I'm going to take a moment to give an unabashed shout out for our quarterly newsletter because it's brilliant. We really work hard to provide quite a few historic articles. It's not just content or like updates about the historical society, which we do. But there are a lot of really great media articles about history of the community that are wonderful. I think just subscribing just for the newsletter content alone is almost well worth it. It includes free museum access. You get first look at our programs. And one of the nice things about the new website is that we are building out a members only area that will include access to the back issues of our newsletter. It will include some content that's exclusive for members that will come through our blog. So they would only be able to see that. And then as we release self-guided tours, those will be available for free for members on the website as well. So that'll be a nice resource for them. Other than that, donations, we really love those um, for both operations and for specific projects. Oh, yeah. And then we work very hard on our grant writing. Boy, do we work on our grant writing. So we're very, very fortunate to have a board member on our staff who not only is good at grant writing, but enjoys doing it. Um, And I think that's a rare find. Um, So we're pretty much always on the lookout for local national, international opportunities for grants. And we're also rather fortunate that Minnesota really loves its arts and culture and makes funding available at a state level that folks can apply for. It's, it's called legacy funding. Quite a few of our projects over the years have been funded through legacy money, which has been critical for us So, and, and will continue to be critical moving forward. I noticed on your website you have a portion, and maybe this is because the website is new or something, but it says save history, help the historical society, and you've got various levels of gifts with a $10, a $50, a $100, $500 donation amounts. And the $500 one says cover our heating bill for a month. And I'm like, oh oh my gosh, 
$500 a month to heat the depot? Well, you got to remember, it's a big space and it's an old space. So while it's pretty much very well insulated, you know, there's always a pocket of air going out somewhere. Um, That insulation is really going to help, though. It does. And most of the building is, is insulated, but it's still it's still pretty old. Um, and it also gets down to like negative 45 here. So Oh, yeah, so right. We, yes. Not only do we have to maintain temperature, but you also have to maintain humidity in the space. Um, so there's there's just a, a bunch of things that to be controlled require just cost a little more for a larger space. So oh, yeah. Just, so yeah. your members and, and the people of the community need to be aware that in order to preserve things properly and in order to to maintain a museum and a historical place, you know, it's going to cost some money. And I hope that you can help and support the historical society. Thanks. So in terms of fundraising, what do you do for fundraising? I know that there's a lot of festivals and that's why I asked the question about that. And I know you have memberships and you mentioned that memberships and donations are your primary ways of obtaining funding. But do you do any other fundraising activities? We will have train days in April. We offer that weekend of programming with the Northern Iron Horse Railroad Society, which is the railroad group that meets downstairs and does model trains. So it's it's primarily their program, their weekend, but it's at the depot and we we coordinate with them on that and we receive some some money from from that event. We'll also have depot days in June. That's at the very end of June and that will that will again be a fundraising opportunity with some ticketed programming and events and that sort of thing. And this is all COVID dependent, obviously. Yeah. Um, but our, our biggest planned event will be in December for our birthday. So we will be having a, I believe it's platinum for the 70th. So platinum Jubilee. Fantastic. Interestingly enough, it is also the platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth. Oh, wow. So we'll, be, we'll be celebrating her coronation, I suppose, uh, in our own way. Our plan is to have a, a an event, some sort of dancing costume, 50s. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. I, I feel like fundraising, it's a little challenging right now because most fundraising that folks do to be really effective has to take place in person. And we're, right. again, we're just not in a super comfortable place to do that. We were intending to do a, a pretty big train event for kids in December that we needed to cancel. And um, so I hope this year goes a little bit better for that because it's pretty hard for us to raise money when we can't see people. So. Yeah. Now, what kind of diversity do you have in your population in the county? I mean, the majority of the folks who live here are white. Probably 2% of the population is um, Black or African-American, um, and then even less than that for Asian Pacific Islander. But nearly 25% of our population is Native American. Right. And more than that, I mean, that's the county, right? But if you look at just folks who are visiting the town of Bemidji, the shopping demographics, it's more than 25%. So um, because it's just the major like the one place you can go in town where you can get groceries and everything else, right? It's the biggest place in the county. Right. I think when we're trying to be responsive and reflective, the, f- the first thing we have to think about is, you know, if 25% of our neighbors are Native American, is 25% of our programming geared toward Native Americans? Are we being as inclusive as we need to be? So that's some of the thinking that we're, we're trying to do. Very smart. Thank you for that. How is COVID-19 yeah. affecting? Now, you've mentioned COVID several times, but right now at the Historical Society, can people just walk in? Do you want them to make an appointment? Do they need to wear a mask? People can just walk in. Um, we've, we've never really been so crowded that it's been a concern about that. If folks have large groups, we really do ask that they do call ahead for that because we want to make sure that we can accommodate individuals. And if we need to you know, close off an exhibit space or a meeting room or something like that, we want to make sure that we are prepared to do that. Um, that really hasn't been a concern thus far, though. 
we require staff and volunteers to wear masks while community members are in the building. And we do make masks and hand cleaner available for anybody who comes in for free. So if anybody needs a mask, they can take one and, and use them. Oh, that's nice. So we have signs up to that effect as well. We, we really do encourage folks just because there are so many folks who can't be vaccinated or haven't been vaccinated yet for whatever reason. So we, we, we do want to try to keep people safe to the best that we can. Do you have any idea what happens with the Native American community in terms of vaccination? They make their own decisions because they're a sovereign nation? My husband and I got our first vaccines from the White Earth Nation because they had extra vaccines. And rather than them going bad, they offered them to their greater community. Oh, so neat. if you lived near that county or near them, then you could just drive over and get your shot. So I would say based on my own experience and, and with the advertising that we've seen around here and the other information that the Native communities strongly support vaccination and are doing everything that they can to keep themselves and their community safe, which is wonderful. So. That's fantastic. Well, it's time for us to take our second break for a few minutes. Okay. Listeners, we'll be right back with Ms. Emily Thabes, the Executive Director of the Beltrami County Historical Society in Bemidji, Minnesota, right after these important messages. You're listening to Preservation Oaks, where we celebrate the great work of historical and genealogical societies and give you the information you need to get involved and have fun doing it. Where can you experience hundreds of years of history in a single day? At the Beltrami County Historical Society. You'll find something for everyone at the Beltrami County Historical Society. For hours, admissions, membership and volunteer opportunities, visit them at their website at BeltramiHistory.org or come see the depot at 130 Minnesota Avenue Southwest, Bemidji, Minnesota 56601. You can also phone at 218-444-3376 or email them at depot at beltramihistory.org. Here are Vic Damone and Johnny Summers for the 64 Fords. Take the wheel, take the wheel. One test drive and you'll see Fords for 64 have new quality. Smoother ride, Smoother ride. new rotability. Try total to performance for a change. Take the wheel, take the wheel. Take time that you explore the new Falcon Fair Take the wheel. wheel. They're better built by Ford. Try total performance for a change. Test drive a new Super Torque Ford. For 64, it's stronger, smoother, steadier than any car in its class. Drive the 64 Fairlane, the family car with a sports car feel. Test drive a 64 Falcon. New clear through, but still the all-time economy jam. Try total performance for a change. Your Ford dealer will show you why Ford has declared this the year of the test drive. At Preservation Oaks, we love history. Not dry, boring dates and facts, but rather the stories of the past about the people who were there. We are very grateful for our historical and genealogical society guests sharing history and information about their society, their current needs, and about what makes them unique. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks, and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. Again, that's preservationoaks at gmail.com. Listeners, thank you for listening. You can comment anytime about the show or send suggestions by emailing preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you. 
This is Dave McFarland, director of the Montgomery County, Iowa Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Ah, humans, proud explorers, risk takers, savvy business people, water driven mills in days gone by, consumption, and other diseases taking people way too early, robotic farming and nuclear rocket engines, as well as colonies on other planets today. And in all those thousands of years humans keep making history in unique ways everywhere they live. Humans will be humans which is exactly why we have museums, historical and genealogical societies. Designed to capture your interest and tell the story of humans in counties and cities across the United States, Preservation Oaks is there to educate our listeners about these vital cultural organizations. Listen to Preservation Oaks today at preservationoaks.podbean.com. This is Maddie V. Inueva. I'm a friend of Sean Thomas's. You know, regardless of where you're from, or which historical or genealogical society you're working with on family research, proper etiquette is important. You don't want to appear to have been raised by wolves. It's a good idea to know some essential skills when working with these valuable societies. Using proper etiquette will help you support the organization performing the sometimes grueling work to find information for you. Here's a few essential skills for you to know. Number 1. If you're communicating with a historical or genealogical society and asking for their help in finding information about family members, pay close attention to their policies and take cues from them. Number 2. Many genealogical and historical societies do not have all their paper and photographic records digitized and online. Therefore, things are not fast and easy for them unless they get lucky. Many times, the society relies on the skill and knowledge of volunteers. They often comb through filing cabinets, books, directories and newspapers to find information you're seeking and information that will be valuable to you. This can take hours, days and sometimes weeks, depending on what you're requesting. Be aware of this effort. It is often invisible to you but quite real. Number 3. Regardless of the official policies, which are generally very low cost. Whenever you make a request to a society please donate liberally to help cover the cost of the time it takes to complete the research, make copies, mail information to you, and so on. Number 4. If the society finds information that helps you, and from that, you know your family lived in the area, then good etiquette is to join and become a member, and then to donate regularly. You can always use Amazon Smile. Doing this causes automatic donations to flow to the society as you shop. As a member, you often receive discounts both on the books you may need, as well as additional research from the society. If you live in the area, it's a good idea to volunteer. That way, you can get to know the records and the history of the area. Having this knowledge will greatly improve the outcomes of your research. Number 5. Whether the research is fruitful or not, always send a thank you note or card in the mail, and don't wait more than a day or two after research concludes. Address the society and thank them for the work they did and the information they sent, or just for trying hard to find something of value for you. Then add another short, positive comment to show your appreciation. Your note may be brief but heartfelt. It's easy to have good manners. These basic rules are just common sense. Ta-da for now my friends. And now, back to Preservation Oak.
Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Emily Thabes from the Beltrami County Historical Society in Bemidji, Minnesota. Thank you for the information, Emily, you've provided to our audience about your society, and welcome back. Thank you. I want to pick up now with your outreach into the community. I know we've mentioned several things, but there's also many more things that your society is doing that I think the listeners would be interested in. So what kind of outreach and education does the society undertake within the community? I think one of the one of the things that I am most excited about that I was really keen on when I first started here is class tours. <laughs> I love when kids come in. It's so much fun to talk about history with with little ones. Yep. Um, so we were very excited to host kids here and offer programming and sort of education that's tied to that. Um, even for the women in sports exhibit, we have some coloring pages and activities available for kids. And um, we do a scavenger hunt kind of activity at the cabin during the county fair every year that kids and nice. adults seem to seem to really enjoy. Um, so that's a piece of it. I think uh, as we talked about some of the crafts and author programs that we have coming up, I, I'm really hoping will be will be interesting. Um, and then, you know, programming is something that I think just is going to kind of evolve over time, in, in part because, you know, we're waiting to see what COVID does and, and we don't have big spaces. So we, we want to make sure that we're not planning things that would get super crowded. I think we're going to see a really healthy balance of author flash like presentations that are more to the audience as well as audience participation classes like like the crafting workshop i'm hoping we can offer some food kind of workshops there's a co-op right down the road from us the Bemidji co-op that just has a wonderful space for like a kitchen space for classes and that kind of thing so hoping we can partner with them or with community ed to offer some things in that area as well so i really feel like as the year progresses, we'll have quite a few varieties of programs that are near the museum or near Bemidji, but we're also looking at building out tours, both guided and self-guided oh, that neat. folks can experience. There are 13 sites on the National Historic Register in Beltrami County. Uh, so I'm hoping that we are able to put together a bit of a, a tour experience for folks to see some or, or all of those of those areas because there are some really really interesting facilities and buildings that bear that distinction i was talking with a museum in kansas and they use a an application which i believe is available on get it from the play store or apple store called pocket sites there a museum or any organization can develop their own tour you go to pocket sites you can take the tour Cool. I thought that was really cool. They had some great tours. I was also excited to see, and I think this was from your website, a Bemidji High School girls basketball team reunion. Yes, that's happening tomorrow, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's like 1973 to 77, is it? Yep, it was It was actually the first few teams after the beginning of Title IX. There was basketball in Bemidji, women's basketball in the 20s. Yeah. And then it kind of went away. While we don't exactly know why for sure, we feel very strongly that the reason that there was girls sports in the 20s um, and early 30s is because there were men off to war. And so there weren't as many men to watch participating uh, in sports. So women took up that role as athletes uh, to give something for people to come see. 
And when the men came back, there wasn't quite the need for that anymore. So just like American girls baseball, other women's sports kind of tampered down a bit. Once Title IX was enacted, that paved the way for sports to come back. And so we're very excited to host some of the women who were on the first basketball teams uh, for Bemidji following Title IX. Just for the audience, can you describe what Title IX is? I will do my best. So Title IX is a federal regulation, a federal law that basically says that women cannot be discriminated against, women or men cannot be discriminated against in places of education where there's federal funding, right? So public education, public all the way K through college. And that it's not just for sports. So one of the reasons that Title IX comes up a lot in sports is because it's, it's partially about equal funding being available for sports. Um, equal access and opportunity for sports. So a person cannot be denied an opportunity to participate in sports because of their gender. That's really the, the heart of Title IX. But it also means that if funding is made available for men's basketball, it also has to be made available for women's basketball. Excellent. And vice versa. So Title IX paved the way for a lot of women's sports to either become available for the first time or to become available again. But it also Title IX ties a lot to discrimination in in the educational setting, so in classrooms or on the campus. So it it also helps to identify cases of and help to minimize and eliminate discrimination. So it's it's a huge deal. And if folks don't know about it, I would encourage you to take time to look it up because it's it's paved the way for a lot of really great things to happen, not just for women, but for men, too. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for describing that. And I hope you are. And also, I should say, not a lawyer. So big, big disclaimer, not a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to be to to be fair and and open about funding. Uh, So that's this Saturday, January 15th from 3 to 4 p.m. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. I hope that comes off just perfectly. Thank you. I also saw in the, the local paper, the Pioneer, that you have a whisk broom making class that we did. Yep. And then you had a, the creating an oral history of your family, which I think is just fantastic and historic bike tour. Yep. Those were all programs that we offered last year. We have, we have an author and historian who is a volunteer for the historical society who loves to help other people learn how to write. The oral histories class was really well received. We had, we actually had two two volunteers who helped to lead that class, teach people how to prepare for and take and then process interviews with family members, um, which I, I think the timing on that was especially good given that we were going into the holidays. And we're really hoping to offer some of that content in video format through our blog because we, we get questions all the time about how do I save the story for my yeah, grandma? Yeah. So we want to, and how do I interview my grandma? People don't know the kinds of questions they should ask or how to take that information down. So we really want to, we feel like that's a real great opportunity and almost an obligation for us to provide education in that in that way. So that's a that's a great thing we we're hoping to kind of put in video format in the future. Sue, who's the historian who helped uh, lead the oral history class, is also leading a writing your own memoirs workshop. Oh, neat! And she's leading that through community education. So we we're we're partnering with Community Ed on that class, the Ojibwe history class that we talked about earlier, and then we're also doing a, a one day workshop around just basic historical research. I think folks can get really easily overwhelmed when they're trying to start doing some sort of family research. And 
while we often have folks who come in here and say that they want help with that, there's a lot of information out there that folks can get without coming to us first. There's also resources that you would otherwise have to pay for, like Ancestry, that are available through our public library, where we could give people some additional guidance on how to use those tools effectively, too. So that workshop, we hope, will give folks a kind of an in-depth tour of the historical society. We'll talk about online resources and resources in our archives that are available, and then take a look at Ancestry software as well, if folks are interested in doing some deeper dive into their genealogy. And so that's a workshop that we're, we're going to be trying out for the spring to see how that goes in that one-day format, and then looking at potentially breaking those topics down into some individual short videos as well. That's cool. Hey, what kind of interesting records in 2021 just alone? I know you guys get donations all the time. I know that every donation is wonderful, but some of them are more interesting than others. What kinds of interesting records or artifacts did you receive in 2021? I don't see everything that comes in all the time. We have a group of really committed board members and volunteers that help with the assessment of items that come in. Of the ones that I have seen, we took in a trunk, actually, that was donated to us, but we found it online through Facebook Marketplace. We were just really excited that the folks decided to donate it to us. But it was a trunk that belonged to a member of the Civilian Conservation Corps. Oh, neat. Are you, are you familiar with the Civilian yeah. Conservation Corps? Yeah, okay. Roosevelt. Yeah, so uh, we actually have a CCC site in Beltrami County, and it's up north a little bit of Bemidji, um, but it's, it's a wonderful location. It's one of the most well-preserved CCC sites in the nation. Most of the original buildings are still there, and some of them have been renovated for even use today. But when those buildings were put up in the middle of January, it was some negative 20 degrees, and they pulled those boxcars open and set up medical facilities and intake places and dining halls. And it's really, really beautiful architecture and really, like, you can see how it's, like, really fundamental. And at the same time, the amount of work that they put into making that a space that was livable and useful for the hundreds of men who were living there and doing work, making trails and doing lumber work and all that throughout this area. And they made some incredible trails and logging roads that are still available and accessible today. And the camp itself is is a wonder. And the folks at that camp, they made snowshoes. You know, they went ice fishing. They had boxing tournaments at the camp. So this is a really incredible history of the folks that were there. But in any case, somebody had a trunk that belonged to somebody who was at that CCC camp and it's stamped and everything with their information and that was donated to us. So it's really neat to have that piece of history and we're hoping we'll be able to connect it with the CCC camp and some images or some other display at at some point. But that was was really cool. I thought that that was kind of cool. That's fantastic. Hey, um, you mentioned how important volunteering is to your organization and how wonderful it is that people in the York communities that you serve volunteer. What kinds of volunteer opportunities do you have for members and the public? Our opportunities for volunteering, I feel like, are pretty wide ranging depending on people's interests. I think the, the biggest challenge we have is timing because we're not open, you know, seven days a week. We're only open four days a week. Right. Um, we always need help with putting things away and organizing things. I mean, 750,000 items, some half a million photographs. Occasionally, it might happen that something gets out of place. (laughs) That's hard to believe. (laughs) You know, over the years, different directors have tried different labeling systems, not all of them very consistent. So there's a lot of organizing and and finding and placing of things that could be done anytime. So um, having help with that is really great. We can always use folks who are interested in helping with tours 
Um, a lot of the work, though, that we need help with is behind the scenes, collection management work, helping to get our records cleaned up, also helping with digitizing materials, scanning in photos, helping to get our store set up for our like our online gift shop. That's something that we are trying to improve upon as well. And even things like helping with writing articles for our newsletter, helping to design different brochures or activities, programs. It's really quite wide ranging, the number of opportunities that are available for folks if they have interest in helping us out. So somebody just wants to reach out to us. We do have a volunteer form that people can fill out and it's on our website. It's also, you know, if people walk in the building, they can grab it. They can just reach out to me too. I'm happy to answer any questions that folks might have about volunteer opportunities. Oh, that's great. You have something to do for everybody. That's really good. What kinds of interesting books has your society published? Most recently, we have published two really cool titles, A a Brief History of Beltrami County, uh, that was a grant-funded title by Leo, who we talked about earlier. And it's a it's a really wonderful book that does a, I would say it's like the lightest deep dive into the history of a county you could possibly ever read. Like it's, it's thorough, but it's not a heavy read. It's very easy to go through and learn about early settling and businesses and education and all sorts of stuff. It's oh, a neat. really great, it's a really great overview of, of the county history. And something that I would certainly recommend to anyone who is maybe moving here or has, I would, I would call it, it was my key primer um, and it's still my key primer, um, learning a little bit about the can county. They, as can they get it in the gift shop? They can. Oh, yep. wonderful. Yep. The other title that we came out with late last year was titled Celebrating Bemidji's 125th Anniversary. It, the book is literally called Bemidji 125 and it is sort of a yearbook, I would say more than anything else, but it does include articles and content about history. It's chock full of photos. Uh, so a really a really nice book specifically about the city, sort of its origins and some of the things that have happened here to make it the place that it is today. There's a coloring book that was also developed alongside of that Bemidji 125 book with pictures from local artists. So we have that available too. This year, we're working on a high school reunion book about the history of the high school. And there are a, a couple other titles that I hear might be in the works as well. We're excited about sort of becoming a formal publisher, if oh, you will. We have, we have, I think we have four books under our publishing name right now, if you will, under our society name, but hoping to expand that. One of the things we used to publish was a, a sort of serial a monograph that was published four times a year about North Country history. So it just, it was chock-a-block full of oral histories. And I think that stopped being published in the 80s. And while we still have print copies for sale, it's not been digitized and it's not still being published. So we're hoping to actually restart that publication probably later this year in a quarterly format with new oral histories from our community. So that's on the that's on the goal list of things that we work on. That requires any publication, be it a monograph or whatnot, requires significant funding just to get it off the ground oh, edited, yeah. published. So we're seeking out donors and grant money for those. I'm really hopeful um, because I believe that folks are eager to have publications like this and for us to continue some history traditions that I think um, have been lost a little bit in time. You guys are really lucky in Beltrami County that you have a great historical society. I want to mention again the website. So the Beltrami County Historical Society's website is BeltramiHistory.org. They're located uh, at 130 Minnesota Avenue Southwest in Bemidji, Minnesota. And you can reach them by phone at 218-444-3376. 
And if you'd like to email, it's depot at BeltramiHistory.org. Speaking of the website, what kinds of things can people do on the website? Uh, So right now, you can take a look at the kinds of exhibits that we have on display right now. We also have an exhibit guide up for the Women in Winter Sports exhibit that gives a little bit more information about the exhibit. And that's something you can download or print if you want that ahead of coming in to see it. We have general information about our research. We have a blog that we are just restarting and trying to get going. So there are some blog posts up there that you can check out. It's a relatively new site. And so we are building on it all the time. Still evolving. Yeah, I think by the end of the year, we'll have newsletter archives available for our members. The blog will be robust because we we have some authors who regularly write for the local paper, The Pioneer. Oh, neat. Um, But but those stories are ours. So we want to make sure that we're cross-posting those on our own site, too. Oh, yeah. I think we've relied pretty heavily on Facebook for the last couple of years to kind of promote ourselves, like from sharing images and articles. But I I think our website will uh, really be a great tool for us now. And I'm hoping that we can leverage it a little bit better over time here. What's the easiest way for people to donate? As I've talked to various historical societies, sometimes they say, well, I just want them to call or use the website or whatever it is. And also there's Amazon Smile. What's the best way to donate in your view? If folks are interested in donating to us like a cash donation, a check donation, we we will happily accept that any way that folks would like to give it to us. So uh, if you go to our website, there's a button at the top of every page that says donate. And folks can just click on that and you can choose a one-time donation or a repeating donation. I mean, there are lots of options there if you want to do something like that. We take checks in the mail pretty regularly, so happy to do it that way as well. Amazon Smiles is really great if you are a regular Amazon buyer and are looking for a community group to contribute to. Amazon makes a small percentage donation for purchases that would be then directed to your nonprofit choice next case us. The increments are fairly small, but every little bit counts. So we are grateful to take that. So if if somebody needs help setting up their Amazon Smile to direct it to us, you can just reach out to us and we will help you with your setup of that. We are also happy to take in-kind donations. This would probably be directed more toward businesses than individuals, just like we are happy to take volunteer services. We often have need for food for events or gift certificates if we're doing some sort of an auction or something like that. So if folks are interested in that, we would love to connect with folks there as well. Fantastic. Now we've talked about a lot of things and you and your team have been so productive. It's just amazing. Can you tell the audience about any key or immediate initiatives or needs of the society you have right now that you need support on? Well, I guess I would say that if, if folks are listening to this and you're not a member, become a member. We always need, I mean, we always need operational dollars to get stuff done, right? Keep the lights on, to pay staff, to buy boxes, to put materials in. All of that stuff costs money. So memberships and donations really help with that. And I think a membership is such a great investment because you get you get back from that. You get yeah. access to our, to our history museum, you get access to our newsletter and so on. So that's a really great opportunity to be engaged in that way. So I think that's a, that's a big first step for us. I would just say staying connected to the work that we're doing and checking out our website, liking our Facebook page and sharing, sharing what we are doing with other people. We really want our community to know that history is live. History is happening. History is not a thing that is in the past, right? Like it is and it's now, right? We are we are talking about it now and we're trying to preserve it and share it and talk about just really how important it is. 
um, that we that we know our history and are able to use that for progress. <laughs> so any any way that we're able to share that message with other people, we would like to do that. So come to our programs, invite other people to come, talk about our videos and stuff that we're posting online. Any anything like that would be really huge for us as we move into this year. You know, our biggest projects as we move into the year, our strategic plans really include working on our collection and getting sort of the back end secured. That's that a record. huge job. Yeah, that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort, and it will it just sort of creates a foundation for us for everything else that we need to do. So right. building a new exhibit in the next few years, a new permanent exhibit, which is a massive, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollar project, right? That's a big project, especially if we involve technology and stuff to that extent. So that's big, building out programming for adults and children and, and leveraging that a little bit more, having a, a stronger presence outside of the museum and the community. As COVID hopefully becomes less of a challenge for us, being able to get out more, but we want to have content to take out there. But that starts with getting our collection in a place that we know what we have and we know what we can share and being able to do that in a way that is informed and educated and respectful and, and honest. So um, that all comes in, in the work that we need to do um, between now and eh, hopefully the end of the year, but maybe before that even. Uh, you've been very kind in sharing with us today, Emily, and I want to thank oh. you. Thanks so much for having me. And I just, I really, I just wanted to say on behalf of other museums too, I really appreciate that you, that you offer this to advocate for the work that's being done. My background is not in museums, but I love them. And I recognize how important I think this work is. And, I, and knowing that, that you and others like you recognize that is just so, it's so valuable for communities. So thank you. It is. Thank you. I've learned a lot. I've had a great time. I'm really glad we finally got a chance to chat with you. Yeah, it's you. really exciting how much important work you and your team are doing and how you're helping the community and your members understand their history. To your point earlier, you're truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. Well, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Emily Thabes, the executive director of the Beltrami County Historical Society located in Bemidji, Minnesota. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. Thank you for listening to Preservation Oak. If you're a member of a museum, historical or genealogical society that has not yet been featured as a guest on our program, please let them know to contact preservationoaks at gmail.com. We welcome everyone. Thank you. We were lucky enough to catch up with Ms. Emily Thabes, the Executive Director of the Beltrami County Historical Society, located in Bemidji, Minnesota. I think after listening to the program, you'll agree that she and her team are sustaining a whirlwind of activity, all of which provides additional value to the community. We learned about how the Historical Society is working on building and improving the complicated relationships between the Historical Society and the native Ojibwe and Dakota First Nations located in the county. The Historical Society Museum has an extensive number of artifacts from these peoples. They're working to ensure the native story is told honestly and in collaboration with the native people and in proportion to the percentage of the county population that is Native American. Per Emily, 
a part of the obligation of any museum or historical society in the area with Native Americans is that they owe it to the community to tell the truth about the relationships and mistakes of the past, to acknowledge the mistakes, and to try to do better. Emily is excited to share a new exhibit located at the Historical Society Depot called Beltrami Women in Winter Sports. There are a number of women athletes who made it to the Olympics that are shared. There are also plans to do interviews with these ladies, the coaches, and support staff all through the winter months. Stop in and see it. We learned about a great man by the name of John Morrison, who was a Renaissance man, running a general store and a trading post, filling the role of postmaster, being a headmaster of a local school, and starting the Historical Society. I think he did so much for the community that the people of Beltrami County ought to think about starting a John Morrison Day's annual celebration. The Beltrami Historical Society will celebrate their 70th anniversary in 2022. The Society is planning a celebration later this year. There are also anniversaries this year for the federal Title IX law and the Winter Olympics. Title IX is the law signed by the President in May of 1972, which equalizes the number of resources allocated to women's and men's sports. I didn't know much about Title IX at all. Perhaps it's kind of naive, but I really thought that the growth in women's sports in the United States occurred organically due to the women's movement and the recognition that it's the right thing to do. I learned from Emily that what caused the change was Title IX. Things changed due to good people enacting new laws to ensure opportunities for women. I encourage you all to take a look at information about Title IX. Early in the society's history in the 1950s, Charles Vandersloos collected 150-plus oral histories from residents in Beltrami County. Many of them are from Native American inhabitants. The Society is working on digitizing and transcribing these and will make them available online via their website. I tell you, these items are pure gold and will be wonderful once they get all transcribed and digitized. The Society serves 86 townships, Native nations, and reservations. They're planning to go on a road trip to complete a township tour throughout the county. Not all townships across Beltrami County have formal government and buildings like town halls. Some had town halls previously, but these became superfluous. In these townships, there may be records, buildings, or artifacts that need to be protected and preserved. This should be a great tour and a benefit for all county residents. The Society is partnering with a consortium of Minnesota museums and historical societies to create exhibits about a history of toys. As a part of that program, they're looking to create a game for kids. Nice concept. The Historical Society recently received two grants for core work to support collection preservation. For the first one, the Society will participate in the CAP program where museum experts assess the Society's preservation materials, methods, and climate control, and then make recommendations for improvements needed so that the Society is using the latest standards, methods, and facilities. The second grant and work effort tied to the collection is moving from one collection management system to an online-based system which is also linked to the other historical societies and museums in Minnesota. With somewhere around 750,000 artifacts, this is a huge amount of work. The goal is to make sure that the Beltrami County Historical Society collections will be viable, available, and usable 
50 years from now. One thing that I need to convey to the residents of Beltrami County, if you're going to drop off artifacts to the Society for Preservation, please don't just drop donations at the door without including the story behind the artifact. Just write a note, write a, write a paper that says, here's the history or the provenance of this artifact. That information is really needed. The Society is redoing both their online website store and the gift shop in the Historical Society Depot. That should be really something, and they're doing that in 2022. Volunteers are always needed, and there's a wide range of opportunities for volunteers. Something for everyone. Helping with tours and collection management work, digitization of materials, setting up gift shop and online store, writing articles, designing brochures. To volunteer, simply fill out the volunteer form on the website, and it's also available at the Society Depot when you stop by. The Society has a number of programs this year to share and offer education. There's a large list. So we have brown bag lunches, which are sort of like an adult history club, and those are planned for the fourth Thursday of every month. You bring your own food and enjoy the program. And it's free. The Society is planning a good variety of these, such as a homesteading history class, uh, learning more about the Ojibwe way of life, Caesars in the wilderness, wilderness camping. There's also going to be a four-part series on Ojibwe history. The Society has an art history program with a class on Ukrainian egg painting. Evidently, Ukrainian egg painting is a historical craft in the area. Should be fun. The Society is planning some author programs. They're planning to sponsor at least four authors this year to discuss their books. The Society is planning a program around Native American powwows. There'll be a spring exhibit and education on the powwow. Participants will also visit one or more local powwows, and that's an excellent opportunity to learn more. The Society will continue the annual activities during the county fair at the Freeman Dowd Cabin located at the fairgrounds. Pioneer rope making, weavers, and a blacksmith will be featured. Then, next to the cabin, there's also a one-room schoolhouse run and staffed by volunteers, which visitors can tour and learn from. There's also going to be scavenger hunts for the kids. Of course, the Society will participate in the Train Days annual event in April in collaboration with the Northern Iron Horse Railroad Society. The Railroad Society has exhibits in the basement of the Historical Society Depot. You can operate a large model train layout. Emily mentioned this is really something special for people. The Society will also participate in the annual Depot Days in June. During that event, they are also planning some ticketed programming and other special events. Emily is planning to develop both guided and self-guided tours of places in the county on the National Historic Register. Now that should be fun. The Society has hopes of becoming a more active publisher. They previously published the book A Brief History of Beltrami County and Bemidji 125, which is a celebration of the 125th anniversary of Bemidji. There are a couple of more titles in the works, one of which is on the history of Bemidji High School. The Society used to publish a serial monograph chock-a-block full of local history. They are planning to restart that in a quarterly format. This effort will require more significant funding for startup. Be aware and support that with your donations. The Society is planning to provide several genealogy research workshops and videos. They're also revising their website and they're revamping it to include a member-only section 
additional online searchable resources, newsletters, publications, and ways to donate and volunteer. Should be great when it's done. When I asked Emily what she believes are the most immediate priorities for the public to help with, she said, If you're not a member, then please become a member. They need operational donations. It's important that the public stay connected to the society and the work they're doing. Check out the website as it evolves. More and more will be available. Per Emily, history is live. History is happening. And the society needs donations to preserve and share it for the community. One of the biggest projects in 2022 includes working on the collection and getting the back-end collection management right. This is a foundational piece driving the future. The Society is planning to build a new permanent exhibit and funding is needed to accomplish that goal. Emily is planning to create added programming for adults and children in the community. Now, Beltramians, in comparison to many societies across the country, you have a really great historical society. The building was just repainted and insulated. It's a beautiful space. So get down there and especially support your historical society, please. It's important work to collect, preserve, and share your history. Many thanks to Emily for taking the time to meet with Preservation Oaks. If you're a listener in the area the society serves, or if you're a listener researching ancestors in the community the society serves, and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the society. There are a number of great benefits conferred upon members. There were a thousand questions I could have asked during our time together, but we are always limited in time. If questions occur to you and you would like more information, please connect with the society. They're always happy to help. You can connect with the Beltrami County Historical Society at their website at beltramihistory.org. The depot is located at 130 Minnesota Avenue Southwest, Bemidji, Minnesota 56601. The phone number is 218-444-3376 and the email is depot at beltramihistory.org. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the society is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer their members and the public. The Beltrami Historical Society is truly one of our preservation oaks. Now you can follow Preservation Oaks at preservationoaks.podbean.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, Reason, YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon Podcast, and Audible, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and Listen Notes under MicroStream Radio, Preservation Oaks, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, or Sean Radcliffe. If you'd like to communicate with us at any time, drop us an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Francesco Lettera, Anthem of Rain, Track Tribe, The High Line, and Symbolbird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everyone for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on our next episode of Preservation Oaks. Mm-hmm.